0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm with Terry Fakes this week, and we're doing an episode that encompasses probably the most frequent question we get at So We Speak. And this is uh, not just through So We Speak. uh, And if you have questions, feel free to send them in, email them, or DM on Twitter or Instagram. We get a lot of questions, and sometimes we just answer those right away. I always try to send a response back, but some of them we save up for podcast episodes. But I'll say this is the most common question in one form or another uh, that we get. And I think that you probably get personally. um, And that is, how do you prep your lessons? How do you go from a text when you select a text to teaching? And I think you know, you teach in a lot of different venues. You teach Sunday school, you'll teach men's Bible studies, you'll do small groups, you'll do your Wednesday night class, you'll preach sometimes. I'm thinking in this one, give us your kind of marquee prep regimen, which would be I think your Wednesday night class up there on the stage teaching for an hour, sometimes very few notes. We want to know what's the secret sauce on that <laughs> What's the prep process like what what makes uh, those lessons so good? And you know one of the one of the key ingredients here is every lesson is like the tip of an iceberg. There's a lot more that goes into it. Than that hour that you see on the stage. So, I wanted to just start with an overall look and say what what is it that you think you're trying to do? You know what what is it that you set out to say? Okay, teaching is or preaching is when you sit down with a text and you're envisioning what it's going to be when you teach it.
1: That's a that's a great question. I I do have a little bit of a method that we'll go through. I have two general principles that are there before the method. Uh, But to answer your question, Douglas Wilson said something. I've read uh, something from Douglas Wilson one time, and he said, great teaching is when you are teaching something you love to people that you love. Mm. And that has always stuck with me. And I have to, I mean, you can use technique to teach something you're not interested in. And if you have a good enough technique uh, and the craft of teaching, you can do it. That's not what we are talking about. Mm -hmm. If I'm not passionate about it, I shouldn't be teaching it in this context. So I I have to have a passion for what I'm teaching. And so, of course, anything in the word, I think all of us as Christians have some certainly some level of zeal for the word. So that's usually not a problem. But then also I try to think about uh, a passion for other people to catch this. If if I had to say, what is, if God gave me a mission, that mission I have felt for a long, long time is to make the Bible come alive. And not that the Bible needs help to come alive. That's not my point. My point is simply to speak the Bible in such a way that, that the spirit can use that to make it come alive in other people. Mm-hmm. And I do think Doug Wilson's right. I have to have a passion for the word and I have to have love the people that I'm teaching to. Right. Yeah, I think that's
0: a wise way to start out because there are a lot of different types of teaching. And you know, one one of the things I think is really important for teachers young and old, but especially young teachers, is to know the venue that you're teaching in. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to be in a small group, you can't teach like you're going to be up on a stage in front of a thousand people and vice versa. But before you even get to that point, you have to make sure the principles are right, and I think that principle actually spans every opportunity you'd have mm-hmm. to open up God's word and to share it with people. Is you have to love what you're talking about. You have to have a, a drive and an interest, and people can definitely tell when you don't. <laughs> right. That is, and, uh, you have to love the people you're teaching too. And you mm-hmm. and that also will be something that's pretty evident to people um, is the way it, it's all almost in your demeanor in the way that you teach, mm-hmm. whether you really care about the topic and whether you care about the people listening. So I think actually in any venue, in any context, that's a great starting principle.
1: Yeah. As you know, my my general overall principles that I bring for me to teaching is first of all, I think your preparation starts with yourself rather than the subject and I, my style is more of an immersion style and so my thought is if you want to teach you need to be constantly learning and so constantly re- depending on your interest follow your interests whether it's you like politics read politics I and mean, you're always reading the word read history read archaeology read whatever you're, you're filling yourself up so that the spirit can use you. And of course, the most important thing is to fill yourself up with the word, and which is why daily Bible reading for teachers is, is essential. Not because every time you read every day, oh, I've got a new teaching idea. No, you're literally letting it soak into you because you're going to teach out of who you are. I think it's inauthentic to teach things that haven't soaked into me. And I don't mean by that that you or I have to be perfect in our behavior, perfect in our understanding to teach something. But number one is, is you you have to think about teaching out of the wellspring of what God has put in you rather than being a middleman between the word and these people. Mm -hmm. My second principle is, you've heard me say this a million times, let the scripture say what it wants to say. And so when I sit down with the text, my uh, first question is to remove, my first thing is remove from my head anything I want to say. And that's why I'm not a big fan of topical lessons, although I do some. I think too many topical lessons can easily slide into me saying what I want to say, and I'm going to throw a little holy water of scripture on it. Mm -hmm. That might be right, but even so it's dangerous. So the, you know, the first step is identifying a section of text. When I sit down with a text, my first question is, and my prayer is to, you know, just Lord, tell me what this scripture wants to say. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first thing I do is be submit yourself to the scripture Mm -hmm. rather than the scripture to your teaching idea.
0: Right. And I want to give a little uh, side note here that that, process is is really essential, even if you're coming back to the same text to teach it again when you've taught it in the past. So it's easy if you've studied a passage before, if you've taught that passage before, to go back and look at your notes first on what you taught about that passage. But what's really important is to go back to the text again and almost start from scratch, because number one, you'll probably learn something new, but Mm -hmm. number two over time. And and if you've taught for any amount of time, you'll go back and look at your old lessons and you will be like, what was I thinking here? Why (laughs) did I, you know, Uh not that it was doctrinally wrong, but just, man, I see this so much more clearly now, or I see something in this text that's Uh so much more impactful now, or so, so much closer to what I think the text actually means. And so you got to
1: start from, from the ground level every time. Right. Absolutely. I think those are the things for me that are behind the lesson that go on all the time before you even sit down with a particular text. But I guess for me, there are about six steps of things that I go through. And I'm not saying this is the way to do it, but it starts with identifying a section of the text that makes a particular point. And uh, so whatever that may be, if you're teaching through a book, you've broken it up into pieces, and those each one of those pieces needs to be a thought section, a section that's making a point. Uh, for example, you know, in Galatians, Paul's got some uh, sections that really want to talk about the relationship between Adam and Christ, and there'll be several paragraphs there, but that's the main point, is understanding the relationship and what God was doing with Adam and Christ. There are certain paranetic sections that are just instructions for Christian living, and there are a bunch of instructions in this. But if you've said, what's the point of this section? Well, they are fleshing out what faith looks like in action or a parable or a narrative, a story. In other words, pick you know the section of text. It's hard to teach a text that spans ideas for me. I think the, the text is broken up. Now, there are some really good aids to that. I mean, everybody's Bible has headings in it, and that's what those headings are trying to do. They're not always right, but that's what they're trying to do. Almost every commentary will break down a book into thought sections for you. But that's me. Really step one is know which text you want to talk about mm-hmm. and make it a general thought section of text. And I suspect when you plan sermon series, Cole, you do the same thing. And when I sit down with a series, I try to map out the series to say how, how many weeks does this series want to be? How mm-hmm. many weeks does it need to be? And the, that mapping out is how many distinct important ideas are in this text? Do you do a similar process for preaching? Yeah, I think defining the text is really
0: something that's easily overlooked, but really important for a message is everybody's tried. Everybody's tried to do too much from one text before. Sometimes that means the text is too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that means, like you said, that you're trying to get too many distinct thoughts out of one big section. And, um, whether it's in the gospels where you have things usually divided by story or a block of teaching. And so you're trying to figure out where to cut that off. You don't want to cut off essential context, but you do want to narrow it down to suit uh, with the, the amount of time that you have to teach. Again, the epistles are, are a place where this is really tough because they're not quite as divided usually naturally along uh, idea lines. So you can you can get into one of the epistles in the new Testament and say, well, the next part follows from this part. And the next part follows from this part. And I mean, before, you know, it, you have a whole chapter on your hands, which you cannot do in right. a single lesson, depending on how you're going to try and teach it. I was listening to a sermon this morning, actually from Rick Warren, who you don't always think of as an expository preacher. You think of him more as a practical application preacher, but uh-huh. he knew he, so he picked the whole second half of Philippians one. Hmm. and that's a lot of verses that's you know 14 or 15 verses but what he was doing with it was he had obviously studied the individual verses in, in in that whole passage and then he was able to group them really nicely under a very intuitive framework and so it came out as a concise and compelling sermon because he was able to preserve one main idea through the whole thing and so sometimes it's not even the size of it it's you, when you're prepping, can you get to the point where it's boiled down, boiled down, boiled down to one precise point that has all these different legs to it that you can you can help people to remember and explain through the course of a message or or, or a sermon?
1: Yeah, that that's a great point. Uh, so yeah, getting the right uh, chunk of scripture, and a lot of times this will be experience as well. You'll sometimes get in there and realize I've gotten too big a chunk of scripture, and I've got several disconnected ideas. You know, the the author, the Holy Spirit's moved from one topic to another, and I'm trying to teach them all at once. And, Mm -hmm. And that's just part of experience as to know how much or how little. You know, my second thing before I get into really exegeting the scripture and pulling the teaching out of it is the setting and context. So, once you've identified the passage I'm, I'm big on setting and I'm big on context. And that can be really small, as simple as who's speaking and to whom are they speaking to. I mean, that's context, that's setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be as simple as where is this happening or when is this happening? Like, you know, this is happening in Paul's second missionary journey. And so it's happening around this time of history. Little things like that keep the, the text from becoming a fairy tale. You know, it's sort of like a once upon a time this happened and they, begin, they can be very disconnected. So I try to anchor it into something uh, you can obviously anchor it into the flow of the letter. As you said, last week we talked about this and Paul is going to continue this idea this week. Or you can set it in time, whatever. It can be very detailed. Maybe there are important Jewish customs or important Roman events that affect what's going on in here. But it, it, So it can be large to set this in context, but it can also just be very simple. So I think the second thing for me is usually uh, setting in the context. Now, here's one where I depart a little bit. Before, again, before I get into starting to list my points, you know, okay, what is this text saying? I always ask myself, what kind of lesson does this text want to be? Mm-hmm. And that's, and this is really, a lot of people would say this is a genre question, you know, what kind of genre is it? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it narrative, et cetera? But here's how I like to think about it is I've got my text. I kind of know the setting of the text or whatever context is appropriate for this. The next thing is, okay, what, before I start outlining a lesson, what kind of lesson does this want to be? So for example, is it a story lesson, like a parable? or a narrative where you're effectively telling a story or repeating a story Jesus told. Another would be, it's a set of principles. This is going to be instructions. Um, For example, right now I'm teaching on the Torah and I'm on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments don't want to be a story style lesson. You know, once upon a time this happened and this happened. The Ten Commandments want to be instructions. So I'm more, less interested in Following the flow, as I am of, why does he say not to steal? Why does he say not to covet? Why does he say this? In other words, it's a different kind of lesson. It's more explanatory type of lesson, and I find that I outline those lessons a little bit differently. Do you find yourself uh, doing the same thing? That do you have different kinds of lessons that you teach? Some are explanatory. Some are story style. Uh, some are analytical. Yeah, to
0: me, the, the shape of the text should should basically be the shape of the sermon or the shape of the lesson in the sense that it doesn't, that doesn't mean if it's a psalm, you must sing it. If it's a you know right. story, you must relate it. it. I really think of it, you know, my overarching principle is that expository teaching and preaching is capturing the author's intent, the, the human and the divine author's intent in the text. And applying it to the audience that's sitting before you, and if you're going to do that, then you have to be able to understand the structure of the text as it is written. So, why is this sentence after that sentence? Why, you know, does it start this way? Why does the author give this detail here? And in the process of reading the text and understanding it. I think one of the hardest things to do, but one of the most essential things to do is to get clear, is to spend enough time in the text. And I think this should be done before you ever open a commentary or a study Bible is spend enough time in the text to figure out the internal logic and the internal working of the text or the narrative or, you know, whatever it is. And when, once you're comfortable with that, the lesson will essentially follow that pattern. You know, so if it's if it's a narrative that has two movements to it, it, maybe it has a problem and a solution, or maybe it has um, confusion and then it has clarity, or so you know you have these movements in a narrative. Or if you're reading something that's very didactic, it has a main point and then three explanations. Most of the time, there are probably some exceptions, but most of the time, that's the broad shape you should take with the sermon. Otherwise, you're not going to do a very good job of conveying what the text is saying. It becomes what you're saying about the text. And and both of these are important, but people should walk away knowing what the text says and why it says it, and then having it applied to them. And that's really your job as the teacher is not to say, hey, take my word for it over here on this text. And I have a few other things to say. It's moving through, talking, commenting, applying, illustrating but showing them what is in that text so that if they came back to it, it wouldn't be a foreign land at that point. Now, I think where you're going with the next phase of your teaching is if you just stop there, it's going to be a really boring message. I mean, this, this is the place where if you're only giving background information, if you're only giving the internal logic, if you've only gotten to the point where you're really understanding the text, it, it reads like a commentary. And there's reasons there are no commentaries on the New York Times bestseller list. They are not real stimulating reads
1: from cover to cover. So where do you move after this stage? Yeah, and remember, we haven't opened a commentary or anything at this point. And I think that's important because and I'll tell you, I remember when I first started teaching for the first few years that I would do this basic process and it was me engaging the text. And here, this step number three, after I've selected the text, after I've gotten a little uh, background on the text, the kind, the setting of it, and then three, asking, wh- what does this text want to be? What does it want to say? Uh, that's when I start putting a pencil on paper and I'll start writing now. Well, what does this text want to say? What does this say? What's the internal structure? And I found that uh, when I would do that, I would then go to a commentary later, it's gonna be two steps from now, and I realize, man, they are way, they understood this way better than I did. And I would use theirs because mine wasn't that good. But here's the thing: mine got better and better and better. Because the easy button is go get somebody else's idea. And it may be better for several years than what I had figured out, but over time. My insisting on, I'm going to write down what I'm seeing in this text, and I'm not going to worry about that they saw 10 times more than I did, because the day will come when I'm seeing everything they saw and and then some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the fourth thing is, uh, step, after I've kind of thought through the text, you pray through the text, and this can take a couple of days. I mean, I like to let it soak a little bit. Read it, let it soak, get the internal is. I ask myself this question. If your audience leaves this lesson and can only remember one thing from this message, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Answer to that question is your conclusion. Write that down because that's the last thing you are going to say. I always write the conclusion first. If they leave with only one thing, then this is what it's going to be. And If I don't know what that is, I still need to think about this lesson. I do not yet know what I what this text wants to say. So would you say that that comes to
0: you usually early in your study? Does it come, you know, right before you walk on stage? Does it, is it in the middle of the process? <laughs> when do you get to the point where you're
1: saying, okay, I've got a main idea here in this text? Yeah, that comes in this studying phase for me. If, if I don't know that, I can't move on then because the next step, number five, is dive into the commentaries, explain the text, look into the words, just really get in there. And I'm making a lot of notes at this point, doing a lot of research, you know, is, mm-hmm. is this passage means this, this word connects with that. And, and you know, you're really drawing it out. Uh, at that point in time, I like to know what forest I'm in before I start cutting down trees. And so mm-hmm. for me, Until I get the main idea of the text, I don't understand this text well enough. I don't understand what's going on. And I think for me to get in, this is just me, and you may disagree with this, but when I get into the weeds of the commentary, I'm too deep in here to see the big picture. And I, I just like the idea. I think the Holy Spirit makes the Bible understandable. I don't think it means I understand everything about it, and I certainly don't know all the details. And that's why teachers are necessary. But I think it's possible for people to read a text and pull a main idea out of that text. What is this scene saying? So I like to have a big picture. When I dive in and the next step into the commentaries and other sources to explain the text, and you'll see some good illustrations, some good explanations. I mean, this may be where you have a word study, or you have, you know, all kinds of things come in out of the commentaries, but they tend, they need to be clustered around this big idea, because if you don't, what you have is what happens to a lot of, I think, uh, inexperienced teachers, and we've all been here. You have a ton of information, and you have nothing that ties it together. Right. Yeah. You say a lot, and people will remember almost nothing. Exactly. And that's why I like to write the conclusion first. And that is, okay, what seems to be the big idea? Now, am I saying to you that once you get studying, you go, you know what, I don't think I was right. I I need to tweak that a little. That can happen. But I think you need to write the end of the the conclusion, the last two or three sentences you're going to say, write that first, because everything you study needs to be going there. Mm -hmm. You're also familiar with this, that once you get into a text and you start studying, you realize there are three different lessons here. There's enough material here to teach three important things, but I'm going to teach this one thing today. That's the other thing that I think happens to all of us as inexperienced teachers is I'm trying to teach too many. Yeah. And they're all good and they're all here, but you can't do it all in one lesson.
0: That's one of the easiest things to fall into is to teach too many things or to teach too much. And this is one of the big differences between teaching regularly, you know, if you're in a situation where you're teaching every week or every month or something versus when you get the one-off opportunity to come and, you know, bring a word. And (laughs) when that happens, the biggest ditch you can fall into is teaching every single lesson you've thought about and every single thing that you've wanted to say for the last year, all in one lesson. And I, I think this is from Jonathan Pennington just wrote a great book. I reviewed it. Um, a couple of months ago on So We Speak. And, it, and the book is called Small Preaching, and it's 25 tips for better preaching. And one of the things I, I really appreciated about this book is it's not a start from scratch guide to preaching. It's not like, hey, you know, here, here's the method I use or something. It's more like once you've been teaching for a little bit, here's 25 short tips To kind of like a swing coach, you know, to to look at how you're doing and make some improvements. And one of the ones that he mentions in there is learn to kill your darlings, which is when you get into prep, one of the things you realize is you've got a couple of really, really fascinating pieces of information. And they don't go with what your sermon topic or your lesson is is really gearing towards. And one of the hardest things to do is sometimes to highlight that piece of text and delete it from your notes because you do not need to share that. And that that's part of the discipline of being a good teacher is almost every bad sermon. Or almost every pretty good sermon could become a really good sermon if you would do one more pass and delete a few things, you know, right. streamline it a little bit, make it a little bit more
1: compelling. And that is really hard to do. Oh, it it is heart-wrenching. It's it is difficult to let an illustration or a really interesting point about the text that you are so jazzed about and let it go onto the cutting room floor?
0: Yeah, I've actually thought about this before. Sometimes when I write, I don't write as many blogs as I would like to on our site, but I've thought about before doing a blog, like a regular fixture, even an email newsletter called The Cutting Room Floor, because you get these little nuggets that you have to cut out of your messages that you've studied and you found. They're really cool. They don't really go with the sermon, but they're worth knowing. You know, there are yes. these little gems that you have been panning for all week and you find one and it doesn't fit the setting. So you have to get rid of it. But that's one of the hardest
1: parts of teaching. It is. And the other thing is, is the the longer you study, and again, this immersion method, you're going to know far more than you can teach. And, you know, for a typical series, like a Wednesday night series, I use them as opportunities to learn more. Mm -hmm. I typically read between eight and 10 books on a series, even if I already know it, because there's always new stuff out and I want to keep myself fresh. There are so many interesting things in there. But there's no way they're going to make it into this series, right? Uh, and as cool as I think they are, I can assure you, your audience does not think they're as cool as you do, right? Because they're Especially not. In the same a place diversion from the main point. Exactly. Yeah that that is really difficult. So you're going to find things when you're going through the commentary, you know. So for me, you get the text, you've got the setting, you know what kind of lesson it's going to be, you've got your main idea, or at least the starting main idea. You may be wrong, but go into it with an idea of what the scripture says. Now you're cracking the commentaries, you're finding out all kinds of interesting stuff, You're some things that are going to be really helpful to them, word pictures, metaphors. You know, you're going to be, you know, freely use what these commentaries bring to you, and you're going to get a lot of information, and this is where you also do weed it out a little, and this is where I do my outlining. You know, is you're going to take all this data and now, remember, I've got my conclusion. I know where we're going. Now, I just want to say, if I'm a person who needs to know a logical flow through all this material, what's the pathway through this material? And that's where, unfortunately, you go, you know, this is really cool, but it's a distraction. Mm -hmm. It's not on the main road. And so what is the, you know, what's point number one that leads to point number two that leads to point number three? That here we are at the conclusion. You know, I'm I'm looking for a thread that a reasonable person would say, Oh, that follows on very nicely. You know, Mm -hmm. you're thinking, I could follow your thinking really well through that.
0: Right. So
1: let me ask you a question that
0: to segue into the final part of this process. I was reading something from Tim Keller the other day and he was talking about how he prepares to preach. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that basically he'll sit down two weeks in advance of his preaching. So if it's a Monday morning, he's thinking about the sermon, not that upcoming Sunday, but the next Sunday. And he's looking at his text and he'll spend, you know, a few hours or a half day basically going through the first few uh, steps that you've outlined here, looking Mm -hmm. at the text getting it down to some main ideas, putting a little outline together, and then he will spend the following week, the week that he's actually going to preach it, he'll spend a whole day writing the sermon and doing some commentary work and things like that. And uh, obviously Tim Keller is seriously gifted. He's done this for a long time. I think you're your your preaching and teaching regimen changes a little bit the longer you do it. you see what works for you. You right. also just probably don't need as much to get to the place where you know what it is you want to say from the text. Yeah, but what I thought about when I heard that was, I mean, if you're as brilliant as Tim Keller, you can probably do that. Mm-hmm. What I found is the more touches you have on the lesson or the sermon, usually the better it is. Now, I I agree with him. The two big chunks of time are usually all that people can devote, whether you're in full-time ministry or not, you know, you may have an evening after work and part of a Saturday morning, or even if you're in ministry, you know, of your week, you're not spending the majority of it prepping the sermon. You're spending a good chunk of it, but you have two big times that you can engage with it. But I found that the more 20 minute, 15 minute, or even a look over of your outline, you can do the better and more cohesive it's going to be because you need to bring different mindsets to it. You need to look at it cold a couple of times and hop out of that track that you were on and make sure that the context is right. So when you're at this stage of the process, you've essentially done one time, maybe two, you know, if you split up these two times, absolutely moving into this next phase, where are you in your week at this point? And as you enter these these final steps of the process, how many times are you touching
1: this lesson before you deliver it? That's a great question. I like to, I'm a big believer on in uh, letting the spirit work. And so I never sit down and do a lesson all at once. Uh, I'll do these various pieces in several sessions and several relatively short sessions Uh, Some people who feel like they don't know enough, and I remember this also, and and it's not like I know everything now, but I'm a little more confident having taught for decades. But I do remember thinking, I don't know if I can answer all the questions people ask. And consequently, I would spend almost all my time in this fifth step, this research in the commentaries. I want to be equipped to answer all the questions. Looking back on that now, I've spent too much time in that section. Mm -hmm. just don't worry about not knowing all the answers and uh, spend a little more time in, in different places. But basically, I like to hit a lesson twice a day. And for a couple of short periods, like I may work on it in the morning a little bit. And by that, I mean, I've just jotted down the context or I've made my outline or I've read commentaries for an hour and made my research points. And I'll set it aside and I'll go to a meeting or I'll do something else. And then I like to think about it in the evening. I'll pull up that up and I'll just read back through it. It takes a few seconds to just read back through it. And I'll say, where am I on this now? What do I think now? So I I usually touch a lesson about twice a day a few days, at least a few days before the lesson, depending on my schedule, because I am i believe what you just said. I don't like one big long session. I like a number of short sessions, because mm-hmm. I do think sleeping on it helps. I think the Holy Spirit works. I, I really do believe the Spirit is working inside you to give you a better understanding of this text. The biggest, the worst lessons I've ever taught are lessons where I sat down and did everything in one setting, and then went and taught it. Mm -hmm. And it almost never comes out the way I envisioned it. Right. I always teach it, end up at the end going, you did not prepare well, you should have spent more time, etc. So I do like to touch it several times. How about you? Are you that way with your sermons? You come back to them a couple times? Ideally,
0: yes. I mean, sometimes you're prep schedule is not what you want it to be, but ideally, yes. And th- this is an area where I'm probably antiquated or at least uh, not all that environmentally friendly is I like to get an a early outline from the text itself ready by the first day or two of the prep process, whether that's the same week or the week before when you're looking ahead and I will print that out. And make notes all over it for the next session, whenever that is Wednesday or Thursday or whatever. Uh And then what I'll do is I'll usually between making the notes on that and doing commentary work or whatever comes next, I will retype it to a full outline. And I like to have a full outline headed into Friday Uh um, because I like to revisit it on Friday and Saturday and sometimes on Sunday mornings. And uh, so that second, outline is another one that I'll look at, I'll read it, I'll write on it, I'll make some notes on there and then by the time you get to either Saturday or Sunday and it's 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 time, you know, you've got to have it ready. I don't even print my notes for the sermon itself. I only I only print them before cuz I preach from an iPad, but I'll oh. type them and put them, you know, cleanly together and then oh. I'll put them on the iPad. So I actually in an ideal world like to have about 3 iterations, two of those that I'm writing on and taking notes on and everybody kind of does that differently. But for me, that's the most helpful way to get everything organized and in the right place and revisit it so that you're touching it, you know, four times before you preach it, uh, four distinct times, some of them longer than others. It just seems to me like that's the way to bring your best, most well-rounded self to the prep process and to put yourself in the mind of the people that are hearing it. Imagine the things that, uh, would connect well with, certain groups of people that you know are going to be out there, and then also make sure you don't miss anything real obvious. Um, You know, I remember one of the ways that I love to train teachers is we we would go through and we teach certain principles of prep and teaching and delivery, but then at the end, you'd have all the people preach a sermon, and usually we divide up Philippians or Ephesians or something, and you know, you get your 10 verses, and it's funny because sometimes you have people double up if you have too many people and they'll preach the same text and the sermons are always really different. And that's a good thing. The, the authorial intent should be the same, but the application can be really different, but it's funny. Sometimes you get, you get these sermons and I, I've, I've definitely taught lessons like this before where you teach it. It makes total and in, in, in complete sense to you, but to somebody else listening, they're like you missed the major point of this text because you kind of started over here and took a weird angle into the text and got fixated on something, the most obvious part of the text really didn't figure into your sermon at all. And if you're reapproaching it a few times, that's not really going to happen. You're you're not going to be able to have that tunnel vision on on a text like that. So I think that's a, a, a good way, if you can, to ensure that you're hitting the main portions of the text.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, because if you give yourself several days, I mean, If you've got a week or two, that's wonderful. But uh, if you've got several days, the reason for doing it in little chunks like that is I can't tell you how many times I've come back. Like I'll have studied some that morning I'm working through the process and maybe I've done a little bit of my research and then moved on to another meeting. And I look at it that night and I kind of pull up in front of me and sometimes I just print this out, you know, just I've got three pages of paper. They just have a bunch of notes and notes from commentaries. And, you know, it's got my major point at the top. It's got my one big thing at the top. And I look at it and I realize this is a dead end. Have you ever had that feeling where you realize where I'm going? Not the major point, but where my head's moving in this research. I'm in a cul-de-sac. This is not the major idea. And it's great to be able to correct that. Mm-hmm. at that point and reset yourself rather than teaching what I call a cul-de-sac lesson where everybody goes round and round and nobody makes any progress. Right. That has happened to me more than once.
0: Yeah, that's not a good feeling, especially when you realize that as you're preaching it.
1: Well, yeah, if you're going to do that of the day, you know, the evening of your teaching, this is not particularly good to realize, you know, this is a cul-de-sac. Yeah. Uh, so it's good to touch it. And by the way, can I throw in just a technique here that I've been using? I I do two things and yeah, everybody has their own method, but I've always kept a commonplace book or a notebook, or, you know, used to be little moleskins, you know, whatever, and I would have that with me as I'd get ideas, because if you do, you touch this several times during the week, you're going to have ideas pop up, and you're going to want to jot that down and go, ooh, that's a nice insight, or there's a metaphor, there's an example I've never thought of before, and you jot it down. You may use it, you may not, but it's popping out of your head when you're not studying, one of the things that I've been doing in addition to that is uh, and this is particularly true on runs or just when I'm uh, in, you know, doing something else is it is so easy electronically now to keep a running note file like that, mm-hmm. whether you're using and I'm application agnostic, uh, you know, whether it's Google Keep or it's anything. Else. I'm currently using Apple Notes of all things because it's really quick and easy. And I can dictate. So Mm -hmm. on my run this morning, I'm thinking about this, what you and I are talking about, and most of the key ideas like, okay, well, what do you do? Well, typically I do this, then I do this, then I do this. And I'm just every now and then hitting the little dictate button and dictate a few notes. And so then I'll print that whole thing out. And it's a bunch of disconnected stuff, but it is so easy to organize Mm -hmm. those ideas. And that's what I do with my research too. If you do it in little pieces, then print it out or put it up in a big screen in front of you. It's a whole lot easier to find your way through it. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of a commonplace book or just carrying a notebook with you, or using your phone as your on-the-go note, notebook. Because I think if you let it soak, if you do this over several days, you'll be surprised that you're you're the back of your mind. You've read this passage several times and there are all kinds of things that your mind is observing when you're not trying. Do you you have that same experience?
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think this goes back to something we talked about in the productivity episode, engage your, engage your productive moments and engage your subconscious in preparing to teach a good lesson. Um, Because the more, the more of you, you can engage in thinking about this and the more, you know, places and surface area you can allow for the Holy spirit to work in your preparation process the better it's going to be so you get to the end of this process and there's always kind of a feeling whether it's a time deadline or whether it's you know you're you're just feeling like you're moving to a place where you you get it and it's it's looking good it's assembled it's manufactured it's moving to the end of the line now it needs a high gloss coat of paint exactly what's, what's the last step in your process
1: and this the, the last step for me is adding uh color. Uh, and that is illustrations, examples, humor. I'm a fan of adding a map in every now and then. Mm-hmm. But in other words, you put the touches on it uh, that, that make it special. And you know, one of the things that has been a problem for me as a teacher, and one of the things I'm trying to get better at, is I would spend so much time. Uh, researching, again, wanting to be able to answer every question, wanting to know everything, you know, you just feel that insecurity of not knowing everything that I would often not have time left for this. And it made for very boring lessons. Mm -hmm. So I really, and this is what, these are the things that come to me at other moments, usually are an illustration like, oh, there's a life illustration that would really fit nicely here. Or there's a metaphor that fits nicely. Or here is a perfect little humorous piece that would lighten this up a little bit. Right. So you can have a lesson that's well constructed and takes people where you want them to go and has a lot of data. But every lesson, every sermon has to give people room to breathe, have to give them a little downtime. And that's what examples and illustrations and humor and stories personal stories do is if you put them in it gives people room to breathe and room to assimilate what you have said mm-hmm. and if i have a and i have a lot of weaknesses as a teacher i'm constantly working on being better this is one that i've focused on a lot is save time for the finishing touches right yeah this is where and and this is probably a different podcast
0: for a different time but this is where i have a little theory of preaching and teaching that I think highlights the way that people go about putting the final touches on a message. Preachers fall and teachers fall into several categories of what your core mode is when you're teaching and preaching. So for you, for example, you're one of the best people I've ever heard at basically preaching to people in a way that inspires them because they understand they're making connections. The Bible's coming alive to them and it's not all cerebral, you know, they're discovering things too with their heart, but you're able to, you're able to fascinate people when you teach it's That's, that's, you know, good storytelling does that. And new information does that and putting you in the setting of the first century does that, but that's not the way that everybody teaches and preaches. Right. Some people motivate by fascination, some by information, some by, um, you know, just motivation or application. Some people do it by e-motivation, you know, the the emotional yeah. tones that you can set when you're engaging with people. Um, some people preach relationally, and that's what they go right. home to. And I think at this end part of your sermon, you, you need to realize who you are as a preacher yeah. and a teacher, and you need to go to your wheelhouse, because different sermons will take different shapes and you'll have different information and different genres. But at the end of the day, you are probably good at one of these, maybe two of these and you need to lead with your best foot forward. And so you need to add the things in that would be the way you would explain something to someone. If you're sitting across the table from them, how do you naturally go about explaining things or motivating someone or talking to somebody about something and you need to put that into the sermon at the end. Don't try to preach somebody else's mode. That's really good advice. Preach in your mode, and this is definitely the time to make sure that this is you. This is your voice. This is you know your personality. Yeah, I think it's um, what what is the guy's name? I think it's uh, I just forgot it. But his first name is Philip. But it's it's there's an old quote that preaching is true through personality, mm-hmm. and I think that's really true. You can get a little off track with that but it needs to be you that preaches this sermon and not your favorite preacher,
1: whoever else. And this last step is really where that happens. That is what you said. There's really well said. And I think this takes a lot of pressure off people that are learning to teach or is wherever you are in your teaching career is you're going to, you're going to mimic people to start with. And everybody does. And and, and even today you and I have people that we are imitating certain elements of what Mm -hmm. they do because they do it better than we do. And that's okay. But, At some point, you you just need to recognize what you do well and kind of stay in that general area and trust God to bring other teachers to do other things. Right. But it's like you said, your sermon should sound a lot like how you would sound if you were in a coffee shop talking to somebody. Yes. I'm not saying stylistically. I'm not a big uh, rhetoric guy. There are people who focus a lot on how you present. That's not my style. I want to be a little more authentic than that. But I think you're right. If if you can't imagine saying these things, sitting in a coffee shop with someone, it's probably not you, right? You're probably trying to preach someone else's sermon. For me, for example, uh, I, I do get passionate about things and get emotional about things, but it's not a gift of mine to make a thousand people cry, you know, in a sermon. There are people who can pull out that emotion. For example, right. If you read something by Max Lucado, I could never write that in that way. And that's okay, because God and the Spirit uses all kinds of different things to touch all kinds of different people. But that is really important, is just stay in what God's gifted you to do and be okay with that. There's nothing right. wrong with that. Try some other things out, but that's it. You know, one other pitfall, i see if this has ever happened to you, because it has to me, is I've turned this whole thing upside down have you ever, I bet everybody's done this. You have a killer story. Oh yeah. It is such a good story and it's so clever and it has such a good motive that you basically build this whole lesson around that story.
0: Yes. Oh, I think everybody's done this before you, you just have that killer illustration or story or something that happened to you or, you know, and, and, I, this is, this is something that's easy to rag on, but everybody has done this. Everyone. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you know, that it's going to be a bad sermon or that you're going to take a text out of context or something, but it does mean that you need to do a little extra work once you select the text to fit your illustration right. uh, to make sure that what's happening is you're not putting that text in this preconceived, framework that you've come up with. So I don't think that that's always the worst thing to do, but it right. does mean you need to add a couple extra layers to make sure that you're saying what the text is saying with this story or illustration, as opposed to whatever this illustration was saying, and now you've tacked on
1: a, a Bible verse. Yes. if The thing I found about those lessons is people will remember your illustration, and that's gratifying, but as a teacher of God's word, it's kind of like meringue. Tastes yeah. really sweet at the moment, but it has no nutritional value. Right. If it's not connected really closely to a biblical idea or principle or something, then you've just told them a story that they remember. Right. And and I've done that. And I've I definitely thought, done that. That's that's kind of where I say if I've got a killer story, I typically write it down and hold it and wait for the right lesson where it comes to you like this is where that story goes. Yes. But I have to admit, I've gone, I've taken step six, putting the color in and occasionally gone there first and try to make all the every other parts fit into that.
0: Yeah. I think that's a natural temptation. So let me ask you one final question here. After you've taught and you're walking off the stage, how do you know it was good?
1: Yeah, I, I may not be the best guy because I'm I'm kind of critical. And so when I'm walking off, I'm thinking typically, and don't take this wrong. It, it, I, I completely trust the Holy Spirit. Some of the worst, you know, as well as I do, and every teacher knows, some of the lessons you think are the worst, people will come up to you later and go, well, that really spoke to me. And you go, well, that was the Holy Spirit. And you, you know, know what you the know. truth is? It's always the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Because if it's not, then it's how awesome am I? And that is not going to save anybody. And so that, that's a good thing. But typically, I'm walking off thinking about uh, how did that, because you know, as a teacher, you're watching body language the whole time, whether you're in a small group or you're in a big group, you're watching body language and you're fine tuning, you're teaching a lesson and you're thinking about yourself teaching the lesson, because you want to make sure it's connecting a little bit. But basically, afterwards, I, I, I really am evaluating, was that clear? Did it flow? Did I get, this is a prayer I pray every time I teach Is I don't want to get in the way of the word. Mm -hmm. I want it to go through me with as little, uh, you know, diffusion and as little, you know, opaqueness as possible. So, but typically how I know it's a good lesson is if I walk away saying, I said what I wanted to say, I represented that text really well, whether or not it was effective with these people is up to the Holy Spirit. But I feel like I prepared... Typically, when I feel like it wasn't a good lesson is I go, it's obvious to me now that I should have prepared more, or it's obvious to me now that I got off track here, mm-hmm. or something like that. And I just make a note. I don't beat myself up, but I make a note of that and say, then learn a lesson for the next one. Right. Typically, if I've said what I wanted to say in a way that I felt was clear, I feel good about the lesson.
0: Yeah. What, what about well, you? I think that's I, I would agree with that. I think it's not always a feeling of, oh, that was technically proficient. I yeah. think most of the time you walk away feeling like, man, I said what I felt like God laid on my heart to say. I felt like I said what this text says. I didn't get in the way of it. I didn't obscure it. I said what I came here to say. And I think that's when you feel really good. And then you always have to remind yourself, you're constantly praying and reminding yourself that the Holy Spirit is the one that does the work. Of right. the word of God, and you are a vessel, you're a mouthpiece, and people get to hear that, and the Holy Spirit is working on their end, and the Holy Spirit is working on your end, and when those things meet, that's when he transforms people's lives, and, and that's what you have to hope for every time you stand up and preach God's word.
1: Yeah, I'm always reminded of Paul talking uh, and saying, pray for me that I might speak the word boldly and clearly, Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think about that is be bold, say what the scripture says, don't hold back, and also don't be more severe than the scripture is. In other words, let the scripture speak through me and then make it as clear as I can. If I've done yeah. that, I've been faithful to the text. Right, definitely.